So many thanks to you that uh, for people who wrote questions. And so tonight, um, I'll do my best to respond to them. I realized in reading them that sometimes it's nice to be able to ask a further question when somebody's just to really understand more fully what the direction their question is coming from. So uh, in this format, I'll just have to make my best guess what I can say that might be helpful in response to it. And hopefully there's something in it for us all. So the first question, how do I know when I should stop walking and go sit? When should when I should stop both and go drink tea. There's no magic formula here. I think what it really is about is learning our own habits of mind, learning our own tendencies and working with these. There is nothing that is special about sitting, walking, or drinking tea. We don't need to value one or the other. And yet we may find that if we just gave into our habits, we'd sit when it felt nice, and then we'd go for a walk, and then we'd have a cup of tea. And it might be that we don't bear so much fruits from our practice. Or it might be that we sit until it feels like the mind is losing energy, that there is more restlessness, that we've lost interest in some way. The energy level has just dropped. And then it can be really helpful to get up and walk. And as we walk, it sometimes has a way of naturally balancing the energy. It's another, you know, equally as valuable as sitting. And so we might find that it rekindles our interest. It helps to keep the mind fresh. And we may be in a rhythm of sitting and walking. And sometimes it may be even that we're sitting and it feels really fine. But after a certain point, there's just a sense that to walk could also be helpful. We're not grasping at or holding on to the sitting. This can be fine too. And then at some point, maybe it's just plain thirst. We're thirsty. and Or it could also be that we're fed up. We've had enough. We're tired. We might go and have a cup of tea, relax, refresh. And it's not about just abandoning the practice there, but it's letting go of any tension with which we're practicing. So it's something that's, you know, will change from day to day what feels really helpful. But it's really looking to what helps support being present in this moment. Knowing that not one aspect is better than the other, but what's helpful, useful now. And as I've mentioned to a number of you, in the form of this kind of practice, I think it's really helpful to notice what's instigating or initiating the change that we do when we move from one activity to another. Because it is easy here 
to set up a cruisy type of practice where, you know, just as soon as the going gets a little bit tough, we want to get up and do something else. And in that way, we can really be just feeding that, that impulse to get away from something that's unpleasant and moving towards the pleasant. So if we can be aware of what is initiating this desire to get up, we can in that moment just see, is this something I can be with for another moment if it's challenging? And maybe just one more moment of being with it. Or maybe just as we notice it, it's like it was just a moment of restlessness. And in the scene of the restlessness, it no longer has that impact. And so we just let go of it. But it doesn't mean, by saying this, doesn't mean that we have to push ourselves to be with that which feels really unbearable. That there can be a time when it is just helpful to change forms of practice. So just paying attention and make it conscious. It doesn't have to be a judgment. Oh, you have to get up now because the pain is too strong and you just can't be with it. You're no good. You know, that's not helpful. If we're really getting contracted in a state of aversion, then it is really helpful to turn the mind where we can meet experience. And it could be that by walking, it helps to alleviate that. So just becoming familiar with our own patterns and seeing, you know, is it just that I want to go have a cup of tea when it's getting a little uncomfortable? Or is it I'm looking for amusement? I'm looking for something to bring me happiness. And so I'm going for a cup of tea. This is all just great to see. And, you know, this is something that we can work with in our daily lives as well. Okay, here's another one. Over the past year, sound has become a powerful object of awareness. It has become very vivid for me. However, I find in my everyday life that I am not only noticing subtle sounds more, I am also waking up to them in the middle of the night and feeling more distracted and overwhelmed by them. Is this the meditation or something else? Advice. It can happen through meditation that we become much more sensitized to our experience. We might have noticed this just with the breath, that maybe we've been aware of the breath when we've been sitting, and we start to notice it more in our lives. Sound, this could be the same. We start to notice more sounds. One of the aspects of practice is also to notice how the attitude in the mind towards the experience. So it could be that aversion has been creeping in in some way. And so if we don't recognize this aversion, it's fed every time that a sound startles us, every time it's vivid, it arises suddenly. It can um, become harder then to really just know hearing as hearing. And so it could be that it's helpful to, one, just notice the attitude in the mind, how we're relating to the experience. And that could be as you're sitting here practicing. Um, 
just you know where it might be easier to be with the sound sitting in the hall than it is in the middle of the night. So that could be one aspect that's helpful. But it also can be very much like if we were using the breath as our anchor and we had a bad cold or asthma or something like that, then it's not so helpful as the place to which we always come back to because the mind is in some way getting agitated through connecting with that experience. And then it can really start to set up in the mind that we don't want to be aware, that it's, it's, it, it, or it becomes tiring to keep being aware if there's a lot of agitation with what we're using as the main support in our practice. So if this is feeling like maybe sound was really helpful at one point in your practice, it's also okay to switch. You know, and that could be even just for periods of time. You, you might choose body sensations, full body breath. It really doesn't matter. Um, it could be even awareness itself, an open awareness. But to, to not be forcing yourself to continually be with something that is feeling like there is an aversion to in the, in the immediate upon hearing. So just to pay attention to that. So both of those aspects, checking the attitude, and then if it feels helpful, using something else as your object. In the middle of the night, if we're hearing, you know, really sensitized to sound, just let it be really spacious, open. Now just kind of resting in the awareness of hearing and not needing to grip tightly onto the experience, but just allowing a wide open awareness. So, Joseph describes mindfulness as to meet the experience face to face, but he added, without aversion, attachment, or ignorance. This description raised the bar of what I had previously understood as mindfulness. In this context, what does ignorance mean? I never like speaking for somebody else. (laughs) So what I can offer is my own interpretation of when I hear this, what, what, how do I interpret it? And so in this context where we're talking about coming face to face with experience without aversion, attachment, or ignorance in ignorance, points to when we are not seeing things in their nature. You know, this is what delusion is, ignorance. Not, we, we're, we're confused, we're um, mystified, um, befuddled by experience. And on the subtlest level, as we've talked about this month, being this sense of a small separate separate self whom 
things belong to. And so with this, in moments where there is mindfulness that is completely free of this concept of self, this ignorance has been alleviated. It's not there. It's not present. But this is a high bar because as we probably all know that there's often this subtle stench of self. You know, just something lingering that feels like me. But we don't have to then judge ourselves that this isn't pure, this isn't good, this isn't enough. Because what happens through paying attention, being aware, if greed, aversion, delusion are present, we begin to see them in their nature. And so even if we have this feeling that there is some subtle sense of I, me, and mine with the experience, by staying steady with this, the ignorance gets dispelled. And then we can have moments where there is just pure awareness. You know, just for a moment, there's nothing self-referencing in our experience. There's no grasping, there's no aversion, and the nature of reality is being seen, understood. There's wisdom. So just doing the best that we can in turning up, being present, aware. And from this, letting awareness purify. You know, just the stability of mind, the mist, the, you know, the veil, the, the thoughts, the conceptual world starts to, to be seen for what it is. You know, it's not as if suddenly everything disappears but we just see things for what they are. I know very well how it feels to sink when meditating in internal objects, but I seem to not be able to do the same with external objects. For example, I use sound as an object. How does, it, how does it feel, the difference amongst being absorbed versus being aware of the object? So we're probably all familiar with sinking mind. You know, we're, we're sitting, maybe there's some calm, some peace, this internal, and the mind gets pretty still, quiet, but we start to get dull, heavy. There's not a lot of clarity with the experience. And we get what's called sinking mind. 
where the mind starts to sink into the experience and the clarity aspect isn't there, the knowing. And so, um, you know, often in practice, when we see this, just the recognition of it can start to bring things back into balance. To begin to just notice change begins to bring things into balance. Um, that, that brings back that freshness of mind that is different. You know, there's a, a calmness that one can sink into or there's the knowing of calmness where that's the momentary experience being cognized in that moment. And so the difference between being absorbed into, it's you know, almost like something comes along, and this is whether it's internal or external, and there's an enchantment with, but we are no longer aware of the awareness. You know, it's more just like in calm peace, it's like you become the peace, but there's not awareness of the peace. And similarly with sound, you know, we could become really enchanted listening to a, uh, say, a symphony orchestra, mesmerized in a certain way. Or there's a way of really being with that experience where it's vividly clear. And it's just, you know, a continual flow of changing sound. But there's no drifting with it. You know, I almost feel like when the sinking mind is there, it's like, you know, just kind of um, getting intoxicated almost. And, And so out of that, there's not the brightness of mind. Whereas when we're just simply aware, it's the same experience, but it's just the mind simply knowing that in its immediacy and its registering change. So it's not like it's absorbing into one aspect of it, but still open to the full spectrum. Okay, so why does IMS and the Forest Refuge have so many statues of Buddha when he himself said to his followers to not look at him but at the Dharma? I think I'll speak about this just from a a, a personal level of for me when I see a Buddha statue. It isn't that this sense of worshipping the Buddha. But what that Buddha reminds me of is what's possible as a human being. It helps to arouse faith. It helps to arouse confidence, the, the sense of possibility. Um, actually, I remember too at times when I just felt at a complete loss It was just this looking up and remembering from that place that the Buddha too had experienced challenges in his life and that 
if he could do it, I too could do it. And, you know, it just, in those moments, to me, has been invaluable to have something to remind me. You know, and what's been helpful to me is having a context of the Buddha's life to remember something of what his story is. And of course, we only know the stories that have been told down through time. Um, But they always, to me, point towards what is possible. And to me, it has been beautiful that as it was said in this question, that he did point towards the Dhamma being the way. And that, you know, he didn't appoint someone to be the next Buddha, in a sense, to take over in that way, but to let the practice, let the Dharma be the path. But within that, as human beings, because we get so confused, we get caught up, we get lost, it's helpful to have reminders. And so to me, this is what these Buddhas that are around this place represent what they're, how they're helpful to me. And of course, we may all have different ways of looking at them, of what they bring up for us. And so it may not be that for you that that is what is um, inspiring. Or maybe it is. But I think in our lives it's helpful to have reminders of what inspires us. So if this question comes from someone whom is not so comfortable with it, to see what, it, what can you have in your home environment or where a place that you frequent and that really is a place where you feel like you can have a vulnerability of heart. What can, have you, what can you put there to help you to have faith and confidence that this is okay, that this is possible? So there's a question about, please explain pranayama. And I just wanted to say briefly that Um, the term pranayama comes from the Hindu tradition. And I have not studied the Hindu tradition. And so, you know, I really don't feel like this is anything that I can speak to. You know, it's basically pointing towards the life force, our life force, and connected with it often is the breath. Uh, And as we do the practice here, that sometimes we use the breath, but very often we are just practicing with how things are in this moment. You know, so if it's a short breath, we know a short breath. If it's a long breath, we know a long breath. And it's just awareness of however this breath is now. And at times we may notice more subtle energy in the body, and this is fine too. We can be aware of it. Sometimes we might feel an imbalance with it. And, you know, we can hold that within a vaster space. Or sometimes it might feel like there's a lot of energy within the body. Again, holding it within a vaster space. But we just use it as a support for our meditation. 
that there isn't ways within the practice that gets taught here that we are working to um, change anything, but through being aware of, we may at times find the breath is more relaxed, that the energies are more imbalanced. And this again comes through awareness itself. There's another question, which um, actually at first I kind of laughed, but then I realized there's something important in this question. And it says, are the deer flies always this bad in July? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what seemed really valuable in it is... I think we can be really grateful to the deer flies. And what, what came to mind was, I was sitting a retreat in a retreat center that it was out in nature. Uh, I was in a cabin by myself. It was exquisitely beautiful around me. I, this cabin was protected so that nobody would come walking up. I didn't see anybody at all for five weeks. It was really quite wonderful. There was only one thing about it that irritated me. It was really close to a highway. And when the wind was just right, big trucks going down that highway sounded like they were coming right through my kuti. And at first, this was so irritating. And I think these deer flies can be pretty irritating at times. At least that's been my personal experience of them. And, but what I found from this, you know, the, 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 the noise, the sound of this traffic, was it kept me from simply blissing out. It kept one foot in the relative level in a certain way. And, you know, beautiful as this place is, if it is so perfect, if we come here and everything is exquisitely perfect, how are we ever going to learn to work with the difficulties we experience walking down the streets of New York City? The difficulties we experience when we have children and they're screaming, they're crying, when we have partners that don't behave the way we want them to. Now, so if we pr- only practice in such a perfect environment, what kind of practice is that setting us up for? I don't think it's going to be really useful. And so these deer flies, you know, and if it's not, we could have been here in June and it would have been black flies. Next month it will be horse flies. No, and, and then, you know, if we come in the winter, all the windows are shut, the air is dry, the floors creak like crazy, and the, the pinging in the heaters, it's wild. You know, there's always going to be something. And to this, we can be grateful. So, yes, dear flies, bow to them. <laughs> Dear, bow to them. Yeah.
a brief question. Has anyone at IMS or the FR become enlightened? <laughs> I know when we were building the forest refuge, we said if one person became fully enlightened, it would be worth it. But if people can find benefit in their lives, it's completely worth it, fully enlightened or not. I'll just say that I'm, I'm just realizing that, um, you know, over the course of the years that I've been here, it's been such an honor to bear witness to the insights that people have had, to just see the many different ways that beings are touched by the opportunity to practice. Okay, then we have a, a few couple of questions that really uh, point towards karma or about karma. So the first one, when a habitual behavior, either mental or physical, being underma- is being undermined through awareness and skill, could this be perceived as undermining for the effect of the past? If so, could this be further perceived as the undermining for the effect of time, even just a little bit? If this, if so, could this be further considered as a kind of unbinding from time, even just a little bit? There is an undermining that happens. It was an intriguing word to me, undermining. But there's something that shifts in a moment of awareness where we just aren't feeding into habits. And there is something of the conceptual mind, which time is in the conceptual mind, that is alleviated, that is undermined in this moment. And so there is, there is a way that, that we can experience momentary freedom. No, where we aren't bound by concept in a moment. And this plays into another question. It's just, I would love to hear your reflections and insights on insights and wisdom on karma. <laughs> Let's hope there's some wisdom in it. <laughs> but, so karma. As the... Abhidhamma, or Buddhist psychology, lays out karma. It is that there is a consequence from intentional action or um, intentional volition. And the consequence of that will be determined by whether it is skillful, helpful, whether it leads towards the end of suffering. And if this is the case, then the effect of that 
will be pleasant Vedana. And if in an action it's based in unskillful, it's based in greed, aversion, um, delusion, that the, that the consequence of it will be unpleasant Vedana. And so, on a certain level, what we find with karma is that where it is born is in not what's it, our, our place of power within it is in not trying to stop what's in the past, but how we respond to something in the present. So it can be that um, through past actions, unpleasant Vedana is arising. But in that moment, if we have this awareness and skillfulness, as was pointed to in the first question, that out of that, when we meet that with a kindness of heart, we meet that with compassion, we, then we are planting seeds that will bear fruit of pleasant Vedana in the future. And so there's something that is very empowering about karma. And I think one of the thing, ways that we hold it that isn't actually accurate is, is to, where people think if you do bad things, you will be punished because it's not on that level. It's on the level where we are planting seeds that will give rise to this pleasant or unpleasant Vedana or feeling tone of experience. And where we become empowered in it, it's about how, because, because the karma happens through the intention. If we have an intention to meet our experience with awareness, in the skill, with skillfulness, then we are planting wholesome seeds that will bear fruits that are wholesome. And so it isn't so much about lamenting about, well, what I did in the past that's creating this horrible situation in my life. It's about meeting the situation we find in ourselves in life. And can we do that with kindness, with care? Can we simply really meet this face-to-face, as Joseph mentioned earlier? So it becomes really empowering when we have some understanding of karma. And we can explore this in our own minds. You know, just seeing when we are tormented by anger and we're, we're in, caught in some story, just see, there's, it isn't always so immediate, but in something like anger, we can see the conditioning agent that is there. And we can bear the fruits of that by feeling how unpleasant that is, how painful that is, right there. Or in moments of loving kindness, where you know there's just this opening of the heart, this friendliness towards whatever's arising our, in our experience, or towards another person, towards ourselves, and just feeling how that is conditioning our experience 
and how there is pleasant Vedana in that moment. And so, you know, then, then karma is more complex because it doesn't always bear immediate result. But when we start to see it, it starts to make more sense. And then there's just a willingness of heart to do the best we can in this moment because this is where karma is happening. I can see I'm not quite going to probably make it through all of these questions. Uh, So there's some that relate... uh, more to our daily lives, life after retreat. And so I'll read a couple of these together and then just respond as a whole. Even though I've been at this for many years, it still feels like dukkha has the upper hand, mostly pain and endless hard work. What to do with all this? If there's, uh, should we actively work with the hindrances and aggregates in our daily life, or is this too much of a project? If yes, how? I'll kind of speak to those. um. Oh. Yeah, this one relates to what is the best way to measure the fruits you've received after the retreat is over? And I'll start in with that one. Measuring sticks are always dangerous. That we tend to have very limited perception around our measuring sticks. And we're looking for karma to have an immediate fruit, often with measuring sticks. And yet, at the same time, there is a way where we want to know the practice is benefiting our lives. That, you know, it wouldn't seem so helpful to come and spend, you know, from anywhere from a week to years here on retreat if there really wasn't any benefit from it. So, of course, we want to know that there is some benefit to what we're doing. But one of the things that I found is that you can't always measure this in the short term. I know that I've had retreats where I, I've left retreat and maybe things are still really percolating. Maybe there's something that's been, you know, a really face-to-face encounter with dukkha, with suffering. And so as I venture into life, that this continues to happen. And one could easily look and say, well, I went on retreat and I'm suffering now more than when I went before I went to the retreat. And so the short-term measurement doesn't help. We have to give it a bigger time frame. And with that, we also really have to look and see, are we bringing practice to the center of our lives? If we... And this moves into something of the the other question of, you know, I seem to, I've been practicing for many years and dukkha still has the upper hand. One thing to look at, 
are we keeping meditation compartmentalized in our life? Or are we, when we leave retreat, still bringing it to the center of our lives? Because if it is only something that we really give full attention to on retreat, it will have limited value. Now, that this is not a practice that we abandon when we walk out of here. That we need to, yes, the form of practice is going to change. And it may feel like there's big gaps between when we remember to be aware, but that we need to keep that intention center in our lives. We need to keep the intention to face challenges in our lives. And so, you know, that when we face the challenges in daily life, that do we still have that same willingness of heart that we had as we sat quietly in the meditation hall? And so really looking to see, is practice alive in our lives? And, you know, if it's, sometimes there's just a dryness, a staleness with how we're practicing that we've lost something of the initial juice that we may have had. And so just looking to, we might do some inquiry, some investigation to see if we're harboring some form of complacency. You know, sometimes the the reflections on impermanence, the the, um, reflection on uh, karma can be really helpful. A reflection on the preciousness of this life can be really helpful. Um, just doing some form of reflection if we're falling complacent to arouse energy, to arouse interest. And, and to, you know, when we realize how precious this moment of life, whether it be in retreat, whether it be in daily life, is, then we find that, you know, even if it is dukkha, and I don't think we want to measure how good our practice is by if there's dukkha or not, but is there a willingness of heart to be with dukkha? Because it can happen after years of practice, we hit a level where we are face-to-face with intense suffering. And so it isn't a measurement whether there's, there's some level of dukkha happening but do we have a willingness of heart to be with it? And if we don't, then it is fine to look to what can help to inspire us, what can help to kindle this inspiration, this faith, this confidence that we have the capacity to wake up in our lives that we as a human being have the right to be happy. Sometimes, you know, it comes through books, it comes through hearing people who inspire us, sometimes being in the presence of someone whom is a little bit further down the path can rekindle that. Sometimes it's a friend whom has a courageousness of heart to be with their experience. Sometimes it's a child that has that open innocence that helps us to remember that we too can have this openness of heart. So in that way, 
It's an opening up to let life be our teacher. Really using whatever circumstances we have in our lives to wake up, to, to just let this, our life, be the path. But it is important that we have this freshness of heart, this willingness. And if we find ourselves deadening in some way, be interested. Look what's happening here. There's a question about, well, there are inspiring stories of lay people who've awakened. The classic or ideal model involves the renunciations of things like marriage and childbearing. For one who has not yet taken such things on, would it be advisable to avoid them so as not to be given added obstacles to non-clinging? Again, I think this is a really personal question that we all have our own paths to follow. That certainly to work with non-clinging can be helped by living a simple life. But if we have a mind that is not ready to put things down, we're going to keep finding things to cling to all along the way. Um, If we have something in us that needs to understand non-clinging through relationship, then it could be that relationships are going to be supportive, helpful to us, are going to be a working grounds. But what again becomes important, I think, is to really nurture our aspiration, listening to our deepest vows, and then whether we take a path of the renunciate or we take a path of a layperson in family life, that we stay committed. And, you know, it's, I found it's really easy to imagine that the other way is the easier path. The other way is better. But for each of us to find what it is, what feels like the path that best supports us, and walk that path. And take, so if you've moved into um, having a partner, having children, let that be the path. But don't forget to be awake, to be present to it, and to nurture that and using the challenges that come there. And yes, it can be a complex life. It can be a challenge. But there is people who have used this as a path. And so, you know, I'm sure that there are many people who might say, you can do it that way, but it's really, really hard. But if that's the pull, if, you know, for myself, I can, I only answer as a married woman that it's been helpful to me to have a mirror that is there that reflects back really closely when there's attachment, when my loving kindness isn't quite loving kindness, you know, (laughs) when it's got a few little ideas behind it, a few little attachments to it. 
it's been really helpful. So I think it's going to be different for each of us. But just walk the path wholeheartedly in whichever way you are called to. And, you know, if you are in the situation where you don't have a partner, you don't have children, be fully in that place and see where that takes you. For me, it's felt like the path has unfolded through practice. It's taken me in directions I never imagined. Patricia and I were just talking about this the other day, how when we were young, we had dreams of what we wanted to do. But there's not so much dreams anymore. But there is a trusting in the path. So walk your own path wholeheartedly. And then, actually, this isn't such a bad thing. There were some questions about my... um, Tell us about the progression of your practice. Also, what benefits you've received from the many years of practice. Could you share your experiences of how you... Lord and navigated between different Buddhist traditions and methods, Zen, Tibetan, Vipassana. Specifically, what did you find most valuable in each? What led you to each? And how do you integrate them in your daily practice? What general advice would you give on how to best find out what other forms of practice have to offer? So, my own path. I feel grateful. No, I began this life like so many of us in my teenage years, just in torment. Just what the heck is going on here? And disillusioned. I'm feeling really fortunate that at a young age I heard the Buddhist teachings. And they really resonated. Uh, you know, well, I, I, before I heard the Buddhist teachings, I was introduced to meditation. I didn't have a clue about it. But it was a brief introduction, one minute. But it took hold you know, that I started meditating. And then I heard the Buddhist teachings. They made sense on a certain level. I didn't have any sense of lineage. And that actually didn't come for many years. And I kind of feel grateful for that. That I, I at one point, um, before I did my first retreat, was just going to a group that said, was a Vipassana group. That's how I remember it. And we went and we sat and we walked. And we, sometimes we did that all day. And it was a wonderful thing to be doing. And then I did a weekend. And I had no idea what lineage it was from, and I probably have figured out now it was in the Tibetan tradition, but I didn't have a clue. Didn't matter. It was really helpful. Um, I, you know, also practiced with an Indian guru for a while. And then at one point, I started practicing quite intensively with the uh, Burmese Theravadan teachers. And it was really helpful. The, the type of practice that they were offering was just what I needed at that time. Being a deluded type, I needed to 
get a little bit more present in my life. You know, somebody who could get intoxicated through meditation, but just to get a little bit more grounded, present, to be able to really begin to see what was happening in my experience. And what is offered through the Burmese Sayadas is invaluable in this. And they were, uh, I had two main teachers, Chomyai Sayadaw, Sayadaw Ojanaka, and Sayadaw Upandita. And they were both very demanding teachers. And at times their compassion was fierce. You know, really... Um, and that was helpful. It helped to cut through a lot of uh, wishy-washiness within my way of being. It, w- it um, was very, very helpful. And then it just happened. And so I want to say that, yes, I ventured into different traditions, but it wasn't like I went looking for something different being offered in a different way. It was more karmic, is how I experience it. It was just that teachers appeared there in front of me. And so it felt respectful to listen to what they were teaching. And so my venture into the Zen world happened at the same time I was practicing intensively with the Burmese teachers. That I was living in Australia after a retreat at IMS, two-month retreat with Sayadaw Upandita. I went back to Australia and my friend had signed me up to a Zen retreat. Well, I went was an amazing Zen master. Uh, he, and what I appreciated was that I was starting to have um, a lot of ideas from the teachings that I'd been hearing. And these ideas weren't grounded in my own experience. And so what does a Zen master do? He hits you on the head. I mean, he didn't use a Zen stick, but really, just the way he cut through was like, you know, I would start talking about something that he could see that wasn't grounded in my own experience, and boom, he just kind of whacked me in a certain way. And so it was seeing that, wow, you know, I don't really understand that. He was bringing me back to what my own experience was. Um, he, his name was Hogan Daido Yamahata, and he was very playful, He's, he still is alive. I haven't seen him in years, so I talk about him in the past tense. But he, he was just, he's an exquisite being, very playful, light. Um, he loved nature, had a great love of nature, and so that was something we shared. And there was just a deep resonance. And I didn't spend a lot of years with him, but I did get to be close to him at times. And so, you know, really felt like I. He, he just went straight to my heart, in a sense. And I feel like I still carry with me teachings from all of these teachers. They've all been so helpful. And then it happened quite naturally that I also was introduced to Tibetan teachers. And it happened just at a time where it was helping me to let go of my attachment to skillful means in a certain way. Um, And, you know, that, again, is not something that is everybody's path, but it was a case of timing in the moment. And then again, it felt like there was, you know, a karmic connection with the teachers that I met. 
First, I met Sokne Rinpoche, uh, a, a wonderful Tibetan teacher. And then I, through him, I met his brother, Mingyur Rinpoche, whom has just been so deeply helpful in my own practice and whose, whose vision of bringing his teachings into the world really struck a chord in my own heart. And so that, that really moved me into that world. But all of these traditions have been so rich and valuable. And some people get really confused going within traditions. So then it's not helpful. It's not useful. And it's not like one is better than the other. We all have different tendencies, different things that are helpful. And so it's really finding again what helps us to wake up? What resonates with us? And that isn't just what helps us to be comfortable in our lives, but what also is that Zen stick that helps us to break out of that complacency and bring alive this willingness to meet life head on. One of the things that I found unuseful is when I turned up at a teacher because somebody else was really valuing, getting benefit, and I thought, you know, it was kind of like window shopping or an intellectual idea of what would be good for me. I felt it more helpful to listen from within, to listen through practice and see what is that support, what's helping us, not letting it be from the intellect, but what's that inner responsiveness. And just, you know, something about what I found beneficial, what has been a benefit isn't the feeling that I've become a really good meditator. I think I mentioned this a few weeks back. You know, that isn't the measuring stick in my life. Because I still feel like, whoa, you know, if I was measuring it against how, what I think perfect practice would look like, nah, not at all. But am I happier in my life? Is there more contentment? Is there something to fall back on when life gets challenging? Yes, there is. And, you know, at times it still gets really challenging, really hard. But I just find there's something to fall back on there, something of support. And so I I really encourage you to watch the measuring sticks that are based on our ideal of what practice should look like. But how are we turning up in our life? Are we more willing to turn up? Can we open to the joy of life as well as the sorrow? Can we open to the totality, even for brief moments, of what it is to be a human being? Something else that I have found invaluable is spiritual friendship. And this is spiritual friendship on all levels, from having teachers who feel like they're further along the path than me, 
from having peers that share this interest, but just finding networks of support because this is hard to do alone. And so we'll find different ways to do this in life. It can be done. You know, there's so much that can be done through the internet. It can be used skillfully through staying connected, inspired. It's so helpful. And to let there be nourishment. So don't make it a torturous path. It doesn't have to be. Find the joy. Find the delight in it. Find, find what lights you up. And do it wholeheartedly. Do it with that conviction of heart and mind. And as I mentioned this morning, just staying steady in that resolve, that determination that isn't brutal, but that comes from our deepest sense of possibility, our intuitive wisdom. And having that support so when we get disenchanted, disillusioned, that there is something to help us to come back on track. Really just doing the best that we can in our lives. And whether you know it or not, that all of you have helped to support me during our time together. And I feel deeply grateful for that. I feel like I've learned from you that the openness of which you've shared has touched me. And in that sense, all of you have been my teacher. So thank you for your willingness to share this journey. And I of the wish that whatever work that we do here together, that this has an effect that ripples out into the world and helps to keep the light of the Dharma, of the truth, alive in a world that is so often distressed. It's really up to us as human beings. So thank you. Just sitting for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.